I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The Athletic. Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. It's the Fulhamish Podcast, your independent voice of Fulham FC. My name's Sammy James. This show brought to you by The Athletic UK. The inquest continues, basically rolling on from Tuesday's podcast straight into the Thursday Club reaction to Fulham's relegation from the Premier League one season back after we were promoted. Uh, The yo-yo adventures continue here on Fulhamish. Uh, and I'm joined today by Jack Collins. How are you doing, Jack? Hello, mate. Hello, listeners. And the self-titled Rutzler the Relegator. <laughs> Peter, how are you doing? Oh, I'm regretting doing that now. Uh, yeah, no, I'm really good, thanks, mate. Well, good. Good. I can't, I'm not very good. I'll, I'll qualify that a little bit. Uh, I'm okay. I'm doing all right. I'm okay. I like the Surviving. title, Peter. I like I it. Mean, it. It I, goes quite well, but I mean, sound, it's not one I want to keep. You sound like a dangerous enemy in, like, Sauron's guard in, like... <laughs> Shadow of Mordor or something. Like, that's where I'm at with it. Oh, no. Who yeah. came up with it? Did you come up with it yourself? Uh, well, you know, I, I, I played on the fact that I'd end up being the Athletics Roger Johnson, right? So, you know, the <laughs> premise was to sort of do something around that because Roger Johnson got relegated three times in a row, Birmingham City, twice with Wolves, I think between 2011 and 2013, and then yeah. got relegated with Charlton a couple of years later. Um, so I was just going to do around that, but then I, I looked into him and just read some pieces and realized that his nickname was actually Roger the Relegator. And I was like, well, that's actually, that's actually quite good. I, I can borrow that. It all goes. I love it. I was wondering if it was something that was going around like the athletic towers, like some evil nickname that they've been calling you behind your back. Like, <laughs> oh, here comes the Relegator. And <laughs> all of the other Premier League writers sat in a room like all smug because their teams uh, have stayed in the league. But poor old Peter comes in. Could be worse, I suppose. You could be the Liquidator. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, not quite there yet. So that one let's hope, that, that, yeah, let's hope one. nobody gets that nickname. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's there. <laughs> Doesn't have the same alliteration anyway. Rutzler the Relegator is just utterly perfect. Well, look, loads to get into today. And Peter, I'll start with you. You were there on Monday at Craven Cottage and it was a bleak night for all Fulham fans. I I think we all knew that relegation was coming. It was pretty horrible, though, for it to happen in that fashion with that kind of timid defeat to what were essentially a relegation rival for most of the season. Yeah, I think the way the game panned out was very disappointing. I think everyone would have liked to have seen, well, I say see more fight, but, you know, have a, a game which was more of a tight contest and that sort of reflected that. I, I'm loath to, to go go down the route of, you know, the players weren't putting the effort in because that just absolutely was not the case. They just weren't good enough. Um, you know, I think they started the game really well. It was quite clear that Fulham were really trying to be front foot, pushing numbers into the box final ball just wasn't good enough um, and it was quite a, a neat comparison actually between Burnley and, and Fulham in, in terms of how streetwise they are, um, how effective they are in both boxes uh, and just how experienced they are as well. Um, you know, I, I sort of touched on that in the the, the relegator piece um, as one of the big comparisons between Fulham and Bournemouth having seen both teams um, over the last two seasons and and I think actually their average starting 11 age is like a day different, um, 25 years, 244 or 245, or maybe I'm just slightly off, but the, the, just a day different. And both of them were the second youngest squads in the league. Um, and I think that was really quite evident. And it's been reflected in the way that Fulham, as Bournemouth did, struggled to come from behind in matches. Um, and I've struggled when the pressure's been really on. Uh, and then you compare that to, to Burnley, who, you know, in the likes of James Tarkovsky, Ben Mee, really vocal, loud characters. There's so much um, noise, I know. Um, not the Fulham are a quiet team. I wouldn't actually level that at the team, but um, a really, really effective team. So much now is going forward. And, and we talked about Chris Wood as well. 
a really effective goal scorer. Um, and that, that, that was really evident. And I think as the game went on, you know, uh, the two goals that conceded weren't great. Um, and, you know, there was plenty of huff and puff and it was just a story of the season, really, I think, after that point. And it's a shame because, you know, I mean, we've, there've been lots of turning points that have failed to turn this year, but um, this was a, this is one where you think when, when your back's up against the wall, maybe they'll pull something out of the hat. But, you know, when you've got, when Angie slams a bar, you know, it's not going to happen. I think that was an interesting point you made there, Peter, about it not being about, you know, players' effort and these things. And and actually, it's something I've seen across the Fulham players who posted there, you know, obviously we've seen posts from, from various players. Joachim Anderson said, deeply sorry we've been letting you down this season. One thing for sure is that we've always been giving our all, but it wasn't enough. In the end of the day, we haven't been good enough. We saw similar kind of sentiment from, from Harris and Reed. Guys, an understatement. We fell short this season for many reasons, but effort and desire to fight for each other and for you fans at home, no. Um, and I think it's important that we kind of re- you know, recognize it. it. It felt like a, a similar thing. Joe Bryan, similarly, we'll do everything we can to get this club back here. Thank you for your support. Like, it did feel like, you know, for the, from those players that there was a point to be made that wasn't about, you know, it, it wasn't about effort. It wasn't about fight. It wasn't about desire. It was about that we've simply come up short. Um, and I think it's probably just important to re-emphasize that. The fact that they they feel like they have to say that is one thing, right? But it's another thing to look at it and be like, yeah, I don't think, especially from those three players, of course, like, you know, you don't. You can never criticize any of those three for, for for not for not being interested, for not for not giving it every single game. I, I don't think throughout the season that's actually been levelled as a criticism. I think all of our analyses have centred on you know recruitment for one, um, the style of play and tactical approach, uh, lack of goal scoring threat, and, and the inability to convert chances. That's never been in doubt, and I think we've that's kind of been a given that Fulham have been fighting the whole way through. And that's actually been one of their best qualities. You know, I mean, it was pretty bleak at the start of the season um, when you're not winning games as well. in that mid part where you just get in draws, it was still, still going. And, you know, and even, and in the Burnley game as well, I know it probably doesn't feel like that when, when the result comes, comes out the way it does, but you know, they were giving everything. And he, even in the second half, I mean, the two nil down and you just went considering how everything has gone, especially in recent weeks, those really late blows. They're still going, still flying into tackles. Lamina was one of the most shocking I've seen. Um, but just it was just that commitment, um, and I wouldn't. I would, yeah. As I said, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Um, I wouldn't question that at all. There were definitely other factors at play this season, and, and fundamentally, it was it was quality. Yeah, I, I mean, Peter, what have you made of the so-called inquest in the last few days? I, I think fans and and pundits and analysts have been scratching to kind of point fingers in various directions whether it's our attack whether it's parker whether it's tony khan what have you made of the uh of the dissection of our season that has been not just in fulham quarters but also kind of in national press as well yeah it's been i think in fulham quarters i think you've you've definitely got the sort of split between those very much centred on recruitment, those very much centred on what Scott Parker did, uh, has done as well this season. Um, and I, I, I think there is that sort of slowly reflection in, in me, in, in national media. I think because of the, because of Scott Parker and the way he talks, I think, I think you guys spoke about it earlier in the week. You do get that sort of sympathy with him, but you know, there is certainly a share of the blame with him for this season. And in terms of the way the team attacked, in terms of, uh, with the way they approach, not making the best out of the tools at, at his disposal, I think it's a very it's a fair argument. And I I think what's sort of shone through is the disconnect there, because you know you've got Scott Parker, who I think when we when we can talk about this, but there's clearly an uneasy tension with with Mitrovic. Not I wouldn't say personally, but in terms of style and the way he wants to play, and that's probably been a bit more longstanding than you know maybe have maybe we thought before, but. Um, just the fact that there is that disconnect there and where, you know, I think Fulham really wanted Mitrovic and to really help the team and to lift them. Um, and yet Parker wanted that the other way. And that, that, that again ties into sort of a disconnect maybe with recruitment and ties into what these, some of these impasses that need to be sort of figured out in the summer and about how Fulham are going to progress and, and whether that's going to be with Parker and, uh, you know, the club, is, as I wrote this week, you know, they, they want it to be Parker. They want to to keep that stability and, and going forward. Um, and whether that does mean changes to recruitment or the changes to the way that they go about their recruitment, um, you know, it's, it's going to be very, very interesting. And I think those sort of topics have, 
uh, taken up a more national focus in the past week. And that, that comes from what Scott Parker said after, after the Burnley game. I mean, in your piece that you wrote on Tuesday morning, Peter, in The Athletic, and if you want to subscribe to The Athletic, uh, you can do so for under £1 a week by going to theathletic.com forward slash Fulham pod. Um, you said that The Athletic understands that Fulham want Parker to stay. He has said he remains committed, but it appears he may wait for pivotal and crucial discussions this summer. What do you think those discussions will center around and jack it'd be good good to get your opinion on this too i think it's it's definitely to do with structure i think um it's difficult to read too much into exactly what he wants from it without him saying it himself but you do get the impression that there is a sort of an, an unhappiness there about the way the club have performed over the last couple of seasons um the way the club have then in terms of the summer and the recruitment and, and you know there are there are other elements to that you know we've talked about how the pandemics influence things and the delays and, and all of that but it's it does seem like Parker wants some kind of change and you know when when we asked about when I asked him specifically about the club structure and if he was happy with it you know he says it's one thing it's something we all want to talk about at the end of the season and he says says quite pointedly you know I have my views on it um and I think I think they want to see change there I think there is my sort of understanding is there's probably a frustration there. With what? I think with the the way, the different squads that they've had to deal with and the changes in that way, I think it's not something that I think suits what Parker wants to do, judging from the, how he's spoken um, about the team and wanting that longer term focus and wanting, you know, as he said after Burnley, and he said that before, but about jumping off the sort of roller coaster. And when you're having to deal with, different squads when you are putting people aside when you are you know telling players you can't they're not really going to be involved it becomes a, a difficult thing to manage and we you know I remember when we way back at the start of the season we talked about the bloated squad and the players that weren't going to be in the Premier League Premier League 25 um, these these things I think will, will play a part and I think that's that's the frustration really and I think they, they would want more sort of alignment um, now I, I that's more of a assumption of what's coming out but it's quite clear that there is that sort of sort of frustration there and I think they want I think they want everyone to sort of be on on the same page and I don't think that's necessarily the case at the moment yeah I, I would add to that and I think Peter's absolutely right from, from what I've heard and I mentioned it on Monday you know the one of the main concerns from 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 what uh, I've been told inside Parker's coaching team is that they're going to be handed back the same group of players from before you know the, these players coming back off loans who missed out on the squad in the Premier League who weren't used in the Premier League and then expected to go and dominate the championship again. And I don't think that's what Parker and Matt Wells and and the like want. What they what they are are after is is that long term strategy to bring in players now and who who can, you know, make that jump up next time so that if Fulham do get promoted, it's not another complete overhaul and another complete sh shift of system, which is completely reasonable, right? That, that, that is something we've talked about. It's there's that long termism. It's not now going back to Stefan Johansson and Dennis Adoy. And look, I, I say that with all due respect to those players. You know, you I don't think anyone who's ever listened to this will, will doubt how much I love Stefan Johansson, right? But he's gone to somewhere where he feels loved. He feels, you know, utilised properly. He feels can do a job. And and they've loved him at QPR. And Mark Warburton has spoken openly about the fact that he wants to keep him there next season. And I think Parker has sort of got to the point where he thinks that's not the way back, the, you know, or not the way forward is, is not to fall back on the players from before. Now, obviously, I think there are exceptions to this rule. I think Josh Onoma has a, a big part to play next year. And I think Parker will, will believe in that, considering how much time and effort he gave him last year and considering the fact that his exclusion from the Premier League this year was mostly due to injury. Um, I think Joe Bryan, for example, is someone who will who play a part. I think Marek Rodak is someone who will go on to play a part. But on the whole, I think the, the fear within Parker's camp and within the coaching staff is that they're going to be chucked back into exactly where they were two years ago with no kind of hope of moving onwards and no help of, of building the squad out into something that compete on both levels. That's the, the main concern from what I'm hearing. I mean, if you were Marek Rodak's agent, right, and you're asking Marek, okay, Marek, we want you back as number one back in the championship next season. If I was Marek Rodak's agent, I'd be saying, hold your horses, Marek. We want assurances that if you go up, Marek will be the first choice 
in the Premier League. I imagine a few other of the kind of key players that you need for the championship next season may also have similar gripes. Because if I, if I was Marek Rodak and I was being told, yeah, 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 you can play in the championship next season, but actually if you go up, you'll be binned off again. These players are going to have demands because they've seen firsthand that we're happy to just drop them at the first sniff of the top flight. I think there's there's something in, in Rodak's case which is slightly different to perhaps some others in the fact that he's obviously a young goalkeeper, you know, with a long future ahead of him, who's seen someone come in who's potentially, you know, top five, six in the world. You know, it's not a it's not like he's been dropped for someone of a similar caliber or similar quality. And I actually think, you know, Ilan Melier aside, right? You don't see particularly many young goalkeepers going up and and making their mark in the Premier League straight away. Um, and I think that you're you're right in in many ways that he will want assurances. I'm I'm pretty comfortable with the idea that Fulham might well give him those assurances. I think there is a an overwhelming faith that that Marit Rodak is going to be a very very good goalkeeper, a top flight worthy goalkeeper in the future. He just might not have been quite there yet. Um, and and so I think that in his case, having a year under Ariola learning, you know, having someone like that to, to mentor him. I know Ariola is not exactly an old head; but he's a much older head in in, in experience terms. Um, is actually not the end of the world in that regard. And I think he might be the one exception to this rule. But on the whole, I do think this is a really valid point. And it's exactly this: how do you can how do you now convince players who were dropped? to buy back into the project long term in order to get Fulham back up with no guarantee that they're going to play if Fulham do get there. And that's, I think, what Parker's main worry is. He doesn't want to go back to the players that he's dropped because he doesn't feel, one, it's probably fair on them, but two, that he wants to go through his entire process again in, in a year's time. I mean, Peter, one thing we actually didn't really get around to discussing last week was Fulham are hoping to fill the position of director of scouting. Um, and in your piece, you said it's a replacement for former assistant director of football operations, Javier Pereira, before the new season and that it is seen as an integral position. So what do you know about this position? And I guess the most importantly, what does this mean for Tony Khan? Yeah, so my understanding of this position is that as you say Sammy it's a it's a replacement for Javier Pereira who left the club quite a while ago now um, in September to fulfill his own management um, ambitions in, in China which he worked in before um, and essentially while there's a it's a new title it, the responsibilities are pretty similar um, now if I you know recall correctly sort of Pereira is sort of remit as well as being assistant to director of football operations, which is of course uh, assistant to, to Tony Khan. Um, this means he's sort of responsible for the academy and senior squad and recruitment being in alignment, as well as uh, the scouting position. Now, the fact that the titles changes would, would you know, is, is interesting. Um, obviously, there is already Brian Talbot, who's chief scout. Um, so he's sort of been the only on the ground person um at Fulham really I mean he spends a lot of time traveling uh from that side because as you know T Tony Khan quite clearly has multiple responsibilities um he's probably you know spread too thinly uh you know he's quite clearly committed to his wrestling and and you know he's I think he's delegated more with with the with the Jacksonville Jaguars but again there's a an, an analytics role now in terms of what this means for the structure um it's difficult really to know exactly, uh, but, you know, my sort of understanding is that, I, you know, I think I, interpreting what it is, I'll, I'll say what my understanding is, but interpreting what it is, it seems like you've got Tony Khan doing the analytics and statistics side of the two boxes, and then you'll have uh, this person, director of scouting, overseeing the scouting side. Um, and then in terms of Fulham's club structure, my understanding is you have Tony Khan, You'll have director of scouting. You'll have Alistair McIntosh, chief executive, and then obviously head coach Scott Parker, and they're responsible for different things. So Parker with the coaching, um, uh, Alistair McIntosh on finance, and then director of scouting um, with the scouting side of recruitment. Um, now Tony Khan, my understanding is, will retain a veto, uh, or as he currently does. Um, I don't think that's different, and I don't know whether that. What, what to what extent that means whether that means it's a, it's a sign-off or is it's you know i mean it is a technically it's a veto so a veto means he has control so that's not 
as things stand, going to change. Veto means you can just block something, no? Exactly. If you don't get your way, you can also enforce it. So I don't think that's too much of a, a surprise when, you know, his father is Shahid Khan. I, you know, I mean, ultimately, he has the veto. And I think if it's a hands-off approach, it'll be for hands-off to Tony. But in terms of the the structure, I don't I don't know how set this is. I mean, Scott Parkin, when I, when I asked him about it, said he, it was not something he'd been consulted about Um and he, he was quite interesting in his in his answer, really. He said, uh, there's a difference between filling positions and putting in place a structure for those positions that work smoothly. I've not been consulted regarding that position. If the club feel it is important in terms of helping us get better and doing our business and identifying players in a better way, then perfect. Again, I think this is something that Parker will probably want to discuss. I think that's something when he talks about wanting big decisions and those crucial discussions, this will be on the agenda for what the structure actually means. I mean, Jack, to all intents and purposes, it doesn't feel like this director of scouting position is going to satisfy many fans who are unhappy with with Tony's role at the club because it still feels like Tony is going to be ultimately the kind of decision maker and also the public face of, of Fulham's transfer activity. And, and I, I still believe as long as he is that kind of public face, you're going to have a, a huge majority of the fan base who, who are unhappy with the situation. Yeah, uh, I completely agree. It, it's, a, it's a strange one, isn't it? There's, there's part of me that thinks that the fact that the name of the position has changed means something. Um, and there's part of me that thinks that's smoke and mirrors. Um, so th- there's, there's obviously questions. I mean, my biggest question is that if this is, you know, the huge, important role, an integral role, part of a, you know, a dedicated position, uh, it's something that, they're looking to, you know, to really push on with ahead of the season. Why has it taken six months, seven months, eight months to replace Javier Pereira? Like it's, it's a strange, it seems strange that the club are now talking about this in the terms of, oh, this is crucial to us. It is absolutely imperative that we have this going forward. And yet Fulham haven't had it for nine months. Like that, that doesn't play ball with me. That doesn't, that doesn't sit nicely in terms of where it is. And, and that's why I'm a bit, all over the place with this in some ways part of me you know thinks that maybe it's a it's a move to quietly start to reshape things in a in a way that doesn't undermine any egos um and part of me thinks that it's it's just another person on a board who is going to talk through roles and and will be part of the same teams and and nothing's going to change but you know that's it's very strange isn't it it's I, I don't know how how you feel about it, Sammy, but it it just doesn't it doesn't fill me with huge amounts of confidence that it's taken this long to to even start to search for it, and also that it's currently not looking like there's any change of remit. I think it's a fair criticism, Jack, because for it to be an integral role, it, you know, you would you would assume that the process would have been concluded by now. Um, you know, and you would expect, you know, I think it would be a fair expectation that it's that it is concluded well before the start of the new season. Because if if this position is as important as it appears to be, when recruitment is going to be essential ahead of another squad turnover, then you, you're going to need that person in place and up to speed. So I think that's a perfectly fair and legitimate criticism of it. I think the change in title is interesting. You know, I, I, as much as I've been told that it's the same sort of responsibilities. You know, that does indicate some kind of shift. And also, I think what it does do, and I think what can't be overlooked too much is the fact that it is someone on the ground full time who essentially by, you know, from what I've been told, has a similar extent of sway without the veto um, for recruitment, Um, which, you know, I mean, as much as Tony Khan is always the the public face, he quite clearly isn't there full time. It's quite clearly on a part time basis. The fact that there is someone there full time is it does make a difference, and I think the fact that it hasn't been for a while is, is definitely a valid criticism too. Um, but you know, it's, it's about filling that position as, as soon as possible. I would go it? further than that. You know, it's not about getting this person in position before the start of the new season. I think this person has to be in position before the end of this one. You know, like if we're going to rehaul this summer, you want someone on the ground looking at targets. To be honest, now. As soon like, as possible. Yeah, you need to be speaking to, you know, the representatives of the current squad, the current players. And, you know, there are some big, big questions to be asked at the moment. And at the moment, Tony Khan is the main person I think most people go to. And um, I think that's that'll be interesting to see 
how much influence this person will will have in terms of how they who who deals with recruitment on that side of Fulham. Of course, there's there's, there's Alistair McIntosh as well. So um, yeah, I mean, I completely agree. It has to be done by the, as soon as possible. I mean, it's it you know you can't have a position that's billed as this important and not have it filled very very quickly. I think for me, the issue always comes down to communication, and I, and I feel like. This position may work. We may appoint someone who's fantastic, who overhauls our squads and and helps us to create a long-term vision for recruitment at the club. And, and eventually, obviously, that is a good thing. I still feel like whilst Tony Khan is the public face of everything, you're going to have a real divide in the fan base. And I think things are more toxic now regarding Tony Khan than they have ever been. And, you know, it would be interesting if there was a way of properly sampling the, the feelings of it within the Fulham fan base that wasn't just a kind of slightly flawed Twitter poll. Because personally, I, I, I think that as long as he is the public face of everything there will be massive discontent. But maybe this is similar to government, right? You know, Boris Johnson, for example, has changed his top team in the last six to nine months massively. There have been new job titles all over the place, uh, um, trying to kind of smooth things behind the scenes after kind of the shambles that was seen um, at the beginning of the year. But at the end of the day, a lot of people just still hate Boris Johnson and don't see anything different because he's still the prime minister. I think there are similar similarities, remarkably, um, between what's going on there and, and here at Fulham and, and as long as Tony is that public face I don't think people will see the change but maybe it's you know the famous quote out of Moneyball you know fans don't run my ball club and, and maybe deep down the hierarchy at Fulham don't really care what the fan base think about this which personally I think is a bit dangerous but maybe if you're a big wig at the top of the club you don't care I don't think this would come to light to the same extent, and I would be surprised if, if you know, if you're if it's billed as a position that's the same as what Javier Pereira had, uh, but has a new title. I would be skeptical that that then that the club hierarchy aren't considerate of fan opinion, and I think it's pretty clear that you know Tony Khan's pretty sensitive to to fan opinion too. Um, so I wouldn't I wouldn't say that, but in terms of whether that actually translates into to, to change and in, in terms of how things are run and how they're structured, that's that's a different question. I think there that's that, that's the question to to be answered. And it will be interesting in these coming weeks where you've got, as you guys sort of outlined earlier in the week, where you have these interesting elements of Alexandra Mitrovic potentially may not stay with Scott Parker. Fulham really wants Scott Parker to stay. Scott Parker's clearly looking for some kind of reassurances. Uh, do those reassurances are they forthcoming and who moves and what what changes um, and, and how and what comes out of it because I think if you get a position where you know Scott Parker Scott, Scott Parker leaves and there isn't some kind of destination you know I mean there's been links to Tottenham but personally I don't think that is that likely but you know you never know in football I, these days. I, I would be very surprised. Let's put it that yeah, way. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there as well, Jack. And, you know, I mentioned in the piece too about interest from Bournemouth, which has been longstanding. Um, and that's not just because, you know, I've, I've gone through both clubs. Um, there, um, There is an interest there too. So, you know, if, if Parker does cut, step away from Fulham and there isn't somewhere where he's automatically gone... Um, then you know, then may, maybe there there hasn't been the, the structural changes he wants. Now, of course, we don't really know what he wants. Whether he, what he wants is entirely unreasonable, we, we don't know at this point. Um, but clearly, there is there is a desire for some kind of shift, and it'll be interesting whether this position of director of scouting and whether it's and, and its responsibilities and whether it's filled in enough time satisfies what what Scott what Scott Parker and his team probably want. Yeah, I, I just think it's a really interesting PR time. For Fulham and, and the fact that Tony hasn't said a word about Fulham's relegation I think kind of sums up the problem they know that if Tony even said a word good bad you know random yeah. he'd, he'd get absolute pelters no matter what he says and, and that's a pretty toxic situation to have maybe they've learned through numerous relegations that these kind of feelings do subside a little bit with time but yeah fascinating to see what will happen next okay we're going to take a quick break uh, and then we're going to get in some of your questions 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Part two of the Fulhamish podcast. Sammy James here with Jack Collins. Hello, listeners. And Peter Rutzler. Hello, hello. So we got so many questions and really good questions as well for Tuesday's podcast that what I've done is I've rolled some of them over into today's to get Peter and Jack's thoughts on them. Now, this first one, I, I, I won't read the whole thing purely because it is a bloody long email, but it's a really good one and a really interesting one um, from Matthew Wall. And he says, unpopular opinion, but I would be happy for Tony Khan to be given more time. Yes, we have fallen short. And yes, a lot of that was down to the later arrival of our transfers and to the lack of a change bringing striker in January. There is plenty of mitigation, however. The summer turnaround was shorter and unique, but the permanent deals were all shrewd. Tosin, Robinson, Tete and Reed for a combined 14 million is fantastic business. He then says, I'd... I agree that I'd rather A, he lived here, B, his only job was director of football at Fulham and C, there was less wrestling on my Twitter timeline. But I think that he hasn't been the main problem this year. I think he is getting better at his job, still a long way to go. And that with TK in the post, we have the full and generous benefit of Shahid's focus. I'd rather keep that and replace Parker. Now, Jack, that is a spicy take from Matt. I imagine it won't be popular with most people listening. What are your thoughts? Well, I think the, you know, the, the A, B and C there are the, are the key, right? That's the, I would rather that, and, and I think this is where we've all got to, right? It, it's not, and I've spoken at length, I've written about it. Peter's written about it. We've talked about the fact that of those, you know, of the loan signings of the late signings, the only one that really hasn't worked out is Ruben Loftus-Cheek, right? Now, maybe that's the, the, the big thing. Maybe it's the fact that Without Tom Kearney this year, we needed someone to build the side around in the middle and be the creative focus. And that big signing, that marquee loan, has been the one that has let us down, right? And there's an argument for that that I completely accept. Um, but I don't think that's it. I think I think the problem here is that we we've got to we've got to look at where I'm going further back where my criticisms are. My criticisms are. They, they revolve around those fees for Anthony Knockart and, and Ivan Cavallero, which we put in on the basis that if Fulham got signed, it wouldn't be on the basis of, of them two players. It would have to be, basically, them two players firing us to promotion, which is, I think, unfair as a squad like overview. I think if you look at that and you think Fulham did get promoted, Cavallero was was all right, uh, Knockart was poor, and... And I think that when you look at that and, and you think, OK, why have we got obligations on those players if we go up based on the fact that we've assumed they are going to be the heartbeat of a Fulham side that goes, you know, gets promoted and in so have basically underfunded ourselves in being able to sign a striker, which has been the main problem you know, going forward this year. I think it's interesting, right? And, and I was looking at Premier Leagues a couple of weeks back and the side that wins the league is usually the side that concedes the least goals, right? The sides that go down are always the sides that score the least. Like, just almost always. Like, it, it just continues and continues as a pattern, right? And yes, we had defensive issues. Sure, 100%. We all looked at the defense and thought, that's not good enough. And if the first six games of the season taught us anything, it was that the seasons before defense would not have kept Fulham up in the Premier League. It wasn't watertight enough. It wasn't cohesive enough. Those issues were addressed. Fine. Well done. It's all good and well, you know, it's all well and good addressing those issues. But if you look at the squad in January and you look at our conversion rate and you look at our chances created and you look at all of these different elements and you and you don't say what we really need to do is go out and marquee ourselves a striker that's the difference between you know staying up and not staying up 
then then I think we've we've undersold ourselves there. And and that's my problem with this. It's not the the players coming in have been poor. I, I don't actually think that on the whole this season. I think the recruitment itself, like the players that have come through the door, have on the whole been very, very good additions. What I haven't what I have got a problem with is that we didn't look at the squad and think this is where we need additions. Look at how many centre backs Fulham have. Look at how many centre backs we have. And and to have that many centre backs on the books, to have the players that we have on the books from last year, when when Scott clearly needs a clear out, we couldn't put everyone into the squad. That we had to, you know, let Kevin McDonald and Stephanie Hansen train with the twenty threes. I think that's poor squad management. And I think that if you look at that and you think we're really light up front, we're very very over heavy at the back, and a lot of that is Premier League deadwood. That's where I have my issues. Right? It's not necessarily all about the recruitment. It's about the fact that this squad is imbalanced bottom heavy and uh, on the whole has left us short in terms of getting the quality to stay up one thing I, I would say just off the back of that I do I do agree Jack I think it is is it's definitely squad management I, I do find it interesting because you know we coming into this season um there was a lot of talk about you know learning the lessons from 2018-19 now on the one side that was to do with expenditure and outlay and, and completely overhauling overhauling the squad and but that in turn you know, led for a pretty strong clamour. And I think this is fair to say that the players who came up were given the opportunity to play. And it was only, and bear in mind that does take away some some time. And that's, you do that and you take that away and the players play in those first couple of games and suddenly it's very, very obvious that these changes need to happen. Now it's easy to it's easy to to make excuses and, and maybe there could be better better management here. But if that was the approach coming into it and suddenly you think, actually, do you know what? This isn't going to work. Then you've got to find that one, you've got to get the players in and then you've got to move the other ones out. And I think there has to be, and I think out of fairness, there has to be some kind of leeway given here for players to be moved on in the climate at the moment. Like you take Jean-Michel Serry, for example. Now he did eventually get a loan move to to Bordeaux in January. But actually finding places for these players during what is a very difficult thing, and I guess this comes back to the family side of things and, and things like that, and how important that is for moving people in this current environment. It's very, very difficult. Um, now, this is not just me making excuses. This is just the reality of the situation. This is what was happening. This is what I was hearing at the time. It's very. It's not always a, a straightforward thing. And I think what's what's very clear is that Fulham are still paying the price for previous mistakes. One is definitely 2018-19 in the amount of money that was spent. The other is the fact that they then made mistakes the following season in terms of players like Anthony Knockhart. And suddenly you're, you're constrained by, by, by financial fair play if we take the numbers as, as, as read. You know, I mean, the signing of knockout makes absolutely no sense. Um, you know, and we talked about that at length and it was costly. Ultimately, it was costly. Now, to what extent do we then read that the, the, the lessons have actually been learned? And I know that's such a toxic phrase, isn't it? Because of the fact that Fulham have been relegated again and it's clearly, you know, different mistakes have been made, whatever. Um, but the recruitment that did come in did fit a sort of younger mould and did fit the sort of things we've been talking about to do with a longer term plan. The likes of Anthony Robinson, the likes of Kenny Tetter, the likes of Tosin Adrabai, one have come in cheap and they could also be sold for a lot more. But they could also grow and probably can play in both divisions. Tetter maybe, maybe not and you can make case for others. Terence Congo probably fits that bracket if he can stay fit. I mean, that's, that's a different debate entirely. So in a sense, there was that sort of learning process and I, I think that's that is fair to say. And then even with the loans that came in, with the options they had, some most of them did have options. Some of them didn't, and they that deserves criticism rightly. Um, they were still good additions for the season. Um, but, you know, you come to the end of the season and, and Fulham are able to convert most of those loans into to permanence, and you're looking at quite a good base going forward for, for the Premier League. And I think that's probably what they were looking for. And I think the criticism is that now that relegation's come around, they've got that next turnover. And what matters is what happens next and why it's so important. Because whether this is just a one-off that this happened in the summer and that recruitment went the right way, but then if you then go back to what went before and you go back to those players and you try to bring them back, then it's not really going to work. You're not actually fully, to use that horrible phrase again, learning those lessons. Yeah, I think it probably links a bit back to what we mentioned in the first part of the um, podcast about this director of scouting. To support what Matt said in his email, I agree. I think some of the signings on their own are good. And clearly we have had a bit of a knack in the last 
18 months, maybe in the, certainly in the last season of actually picking up some good transfers. So clearly something is working, right? And, and I don't know if that's Tony, but you also can't discount that it's Tony. Clearly some stats computer is, is putting out good players that we should buy, right? I guess a lot of fans are talking about this long-term strategy and the title director of scouting doesn't strike me as someone that is responsible for long-term strategy. So I think if they had said, oh, we're hiring a new assistant director of football operations, who's going to oversee the long-term strategy of signings and stuff, then I think a lot of fans would be more appeased by this director of scouting news, but it's, it's all just in the, in the words and the communications. Maybe that is exactly what he's going to do. We don't know, but well, it's like, well, I would, would chip in there. So as in what I said before, and this is what I've, I've reported at the time, the idea is that he takes the responsibilities of Pereira and that's technically what was under Pereira's remit was that alignment between, you know, recruitment first team and the academy. Again, it, it is though, as you say, communication because director of scouting is quite specific. It's scouting, isn't it? I wouldn't necessarily, you know, it's not sporting director. That title is still held by, by Tony Khan. As far as I'm aware, it's still listed on the, on the club website and that doesn't seem to have changed. So then that's where the disconnect comes in. So you, it's one thing to say it and to, for me to report it and to be told these things, say this is what it, what it means, but then for it to actually read between the lines. And Fulham already have a, a chief scout. They've got Brian Tower, but there is a scouting network. It's not just Tony Khan on his computer. There is a team of analysts. There is, there is a scouting system there. It's not, it's not an, empty, an empty room. Um, but clearly there hasn't been that, that sense of for, for someone that's quite clearly in the job title, not director of long-term, but you know, a sporting director or someone quite specifically tasked with that. And you wouldn't assume that from the title director of scouting. And I think that's, that is the, the, the breakdown here. Yeah, and and then and then how then how do you know who is responsible? Like it's, it becomes it becomes murky again, and then the assumption is that things haven't actually changed, and that's probably why you get Scott Parker saying it has to be a position that works smoothly. And you could, I mean, you're almost twisting his words a little bit here, but it's saying it can't just be a paper position. You know, it has to be something with a bit more teeth. Yeah, 100%. Um, moving on towards the, the Metro debate. We haven't really touched on that today. Um, David Milne sent an email. All of these on email, by the way. Hello at fullamish.co.uk. We do take a lot of questions from Twitter, but we also do check the emails um, fairly regularly as well. Uh, this is brilliant. Uh, I think Peter and Jack will both like this. Hey, guys. So I've crunched the numbers, and a point to bring up in the next pod would be that we would have finished 17th on 54 points in the league without Mitrovic's goals last season and if you take away his assists we'd have finished 21st on 48 points saved by goal difference and a Wigan points deduction Parker must be sacked David <laughs> well, it's some statement isn't it yeah, I mean, basically underlying the importance of Mitrovic here which is something that we spoke about in the last episode and, and clearly there's a rift there yeah, well I mean look, no, I don't think anyone's under any illusions right, that the, this is it. It's it's going to be one or the other, and every, you know everyone that I've spoken to with, with any knowledge of, of Alexander Mitrovic's camp basically is like this is this is now a rift. There was a grudge. There was a respect between them at the end of last season, and I said that was going to be you know I wrote a piece about how it was going to be crucial to Parker's chances of success, given how important he was. The fact that that rift is is now there. Uh, I I don't think that is a fixable breach uh, from from where I'm sitting. I don't think that. That, that we're going to be sitting here next season with Parker and Mitrovic both at the club. Um, and so therefore, there's some pretty important decisions to be made. Now, Peter might tell me different, but I'd be I'd be shocked if we see both of them here in, in August. Yeah, that's my understanding. Um, you know, I think this isn't a new thing. I think bubbling away in the background has been this sense of, you know, that Alexander Mitrovic, the fact that he's not being used that much this season. And we've talked about him in in a holistic sense in terms of his confidence and his international duty and, and everything else. Um, but it was quite clear that he, he was no longer Parker's first choice striker. He's playing Ivan Caballero ahead of him. Like, you know, how is he going to take that? Well, he hasn't taken it that well. Right. <laughs> understandably. Somewhat, somewhat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so th this sense of him potentially wanting to move on, I think I've sort of hinted at it for a while, you know, there's been uncertainty and whatever, but you know, this isn't new. And, and I think it's now got to a point where, as I said at the start of the pod, it's not. I don't think it's a personal thing, um, but there's, there's there's clearly a, bring, a breakdown of trust there, and I don't think Scott Parker wants to 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 use him again in in the championship. And it's interesting, actually, that email and it talked about the reliance on Mitrovic. You know, Fulham were built to play to Mitrovic's strengths, 
And this is this comes into what Mitrovic is as a striker. I go back to a, a piece I wrote early in the season when Fulham went to Newcastle, and I think that was when Mitrovic came back into the starting lineup, and we compared his situation to what happened under Rafa Benitez. And, and under Rafa Benitez, he basically went with the same sort of thinking as Scott Parker, and it's worked out in exactly the same way. Um, Benitez believed that if you built a team around Alexander Mitrovic, Alexander Mitrovic will score goals. But he didn't believe that building a team around Alexander Mitrovic would score you enough goals to keep you in the Premier League. Um, now this year, that's 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 been the case again, and I think it can be effective in in the Championship. And obviously, from Fulham's point of view, they're looking at a player here who's got two years left on his contract, a player who you know is going to score you a lot of goals and will get you into promotion contention. Um, but clearly, I think if we are trying to think in a longer term perspective, then maybe maybe that's not what you want to do. Well, it's at least not what you want to do with with Parker there. Now, I think there's a there's a claim to say this is just two managers' opinion, and and that's exactly it. You know, you could have someone else come in, a different coach who comes in and actually builds a team around Mitrovic and plays in a in a style that actually works much more efficiently and can keep a team in the top flight. When Mitrovic has played this season, for, I think just looking at the numbers before before I came on, it's. I think Fulham have won one of the 13 games he started this season, um, which means Fulham have won four of their, their games without him, four of their five, they haven't won many anyway. Um, and you just, I think clearly, Parker doesn't want to play a style that suits Mitrovic. Mitrovic wants to play football matches. He's clearly a proven goal scorer. I mean, his international record is phenomenal. There's a disconnect there. And then it was also, and it comes back to what I was saying before about there being a disconnect in terms of the direction, because it's almost like a, you know, you come into the season. I think Fulham were hoping very much so that Alexander Mitrovic would score them the goals to keep keep the team in the Premier League, and I don't think Parker fully believed that, judging from how it's panned out. In in um, all competitions this year, it'd be worth pointing out that Fulham have scored two goals or more seven times, right? Twice against West Brom in the league, in the cup against QPR and Sheffield Wednesday, against Leeds in that four three loss, against Leicester, and against Everton. Alexander Mitrovic has started four of those seven games. Um, I mean, it's three of five. Three of five, if you if you make it just league. Uh, I, I'm interested. I'm interested in that. The fact that when when Mitrovic has played, yes, you're right. The one in thirteen stat seems a bit damning, but it's also interesting. I think that when he has played, Fulham are the only times basically that Fulham have managed to score more than once. Yeah, and that's exactly how you can move stats and have where you want, really. Um, and I think what this comes back down to is what do Fulham want? Do they want to try with Mitrovic again? He's proven at this level in the championship. Get a manager who can, you know, score them the goals in the Premier League to keep them up. Or do they stick with Scott Parker and go in the direction that he wants to go in, which at the moment, clearly, is not a direction with, with Mitrovic. Yeah, no, I think that's it. I'm just worried about the way that we're dismissing Parker though. I, I, I just, I do believe that like there are other strikers out there that could score a lot of goals. The obvious example is Adam Armstrong, but there are other strikers out there that could, that can score goals too. And I, I just don't know how easy it will be to replace Parker with someone that can keep this squad United. Although I've got a, a an email here from from JD who who thinks the exact opposite and just thinks that you know the stresses that will be placed on Parker to keep everyone happy, despite with all of the kind of churn that we're going to see this summer, it, it is is too great. I, I'm a little bit torn, but I, I I just feel feel uneasy with kind of the way that people are so easily saying, "Oh no, it's got to be Mitro over Parker." I, I I personally believe finding a good manager is much harder to replace than finding a good striker. What you think? Then finding a top goal scorer in the cha- like someone who will top goal scorer in the championship. Because at the moment, Fulham don't have any goals from elsewhere. Worth pointing that out. Yeah, Jack said this last week about, about you know, the squad. And the ch- it's a massive challenge to rehabilitate the team after, you know, putting aside many players who secure promotion and finding that motivation for them to go again. And one of the ways you do that is by replacing the head coach. You can get someone else in with a different voice and different opinion and someone, else, someone else's project to, to buy into. Now, the other side to that, and I'm sure we'll come on to this, is... If you want stability and you want stability across the club, you want the similar, a similar head coach. And what's actually quite important, you know, from the conversations I've had, particularly at youth level, is the fact that not having that stability at the top end in terms of the first team, not just the division they play in, which is definitely one factor, but also not having the same coach. 
makes it much harder for younger players to believe that they will get those opportunities coming through because they have to keep impressing a new first team manager who will have the pressure of coming into a new team to secure promotion for one thing, but to come into a new team and make a very good impression to start with. And you're going to turn to seniors over youth. That's just how it works. And that's how it's been for the last few years. Now, this is this again comes back to these sort of big overarching questions for Fulham in, in terms of where they want to go. And does that mean potentially, you know, not going straight back up at the first time of asking? Would is what's the priority here? Is the priority to try and make sure that there is that sort of alignment going forward? Or is there, you know, get back up and then consider it? Which I think is probably what has been the approach if you take it from an outside perspective. Can we come on to that then? Let's talk about youth because I think that it is worth starting to discuss next season's squad. Now, I've been sort of playing around with it. I, I listed one off on, on Tuesday's episode, but I'm interested to see, Peter, what your thoughts are. I know you mentioned it in the article about which players are feel look like they're ready to make that step up and who who want to, who, who the club want to, to give that shot next year. Yeah, absolutely. Um I think the players you outlined actually this week were, were pretty much on, on the money, really. Uh, in, in the piece, I talk about Sylvester Jasper, um, Jerome Apoku, uh, Tyrese Francois, and then the goalkeepers, George Wickens and Luca Ashby-Hammond, who have already been in the setup. The goalkeepers, it's, it's slightly different anyway. And of course, there's, there's Fabio Carvalho too. Now, my understanding is that you know, he's in line for a long-term contract and there was some uncertainty about his future. Uh, he only had a year left. He was attracting a lot of interest, unsurprisingly, considering the amount of goals he'd scored. Two of the clubs named that were monitoring him were Benfica and Juventus. So we're talking some very decent clubs too. Um, but he's really impressed Scott Parker. And I, and we talked about Carvalho at length before, but he he was a player that I think they didn't feel was ready for the f- for first team football, didn't feel was ready for, for the Premier League just yet. But I think what's happened since he's been training full-time with with the seniors is that he has made such an impression that you know with Fulham needing some kind of spark and he's just thought well why not let's give him a go he's, he's good we think he might be ready for that and so now looking ahead of next into next season I expect him to play quite quite a sizable role I think he should be in and around the first team if not playing quite quite frequently and I think there is a suggestion that they want to see if he can follow the route the sort of the the Ryan Sessignon route of actually playing those games and actually being the sort of making that huge step forward, which is a which is a big label to put on him. So I'm kind of reluctant to do it. Yeah. But there is that sort of sense behind him. Um, and then the others that I think almost certainly will be involved in, in pre-season, I think that's not particularly unusual, but it is at this point when there is such uncertainty with the squad and there. I think there are different players in there with at different stages. Um, you know, Jasper, Francois have all played for the seniors. I think Apoku's got some good senior experience now. Uh, and there's also some players below that who who aren't mentioned, the likes of Jay Stansfield. Um, we talked about Kieran Bowie and there's Mika Bjereth as well, who are under 18s at this point. And I think they're still a, a step back. But when you are playing in the championship, there is that sort of room for growth. And they are making such an impression, of course, and they can win the league title on on Saturday. So yeah, there are players here that I think can make an impression. And, and it's certainly someone like, someone like Jasper who... The sense is he's sort of outgrown the 23s now and he needs some kind of senior football and whether that's with, with Fulham in the first team next year or, or elsewhere. Yeah, it, it feels like they that, that step up is kind of natural. I, I'm interested in Carvalho, obviously, because he, he, he's probably the jewel in the crown in, in, in some ways. But, but more than that, you know, he, he's played obviously a little bit wide. He's mostly played in that central role, right? And, and and that's a big ask for someone coming in to senior football. Now we've seen him deployed on the wing really when he's when he's come on for senior minutes. But is that something they're looking to as a kind of a long-term Tom Kearney kind of heir to the throne? I think there's still, because of his age, there's still that versatility there. Uh, I think it's quite clear that he's very good as a 10. He, he's very good at popping up and scoring goals and being effective in the penalty area. Um, I think playing wide might give him more opportunities, cutting in field. I think he came on against Sheffield Wednesday and sort of fulfilled that role. But otherwise, you know, when he came on against Chelsea, I think when he came on against Burnley in the FA Cup as well, he did play centrally. One of, one of the things that has been mentioned about the championship and, and particularly with Carvalho, you know, this is why with Carvalho, there was always this, not re- not reluctance or reticence, but it, it was almost that about playing him is that, because of his style of play, because he is that sort of 10 creative influence, some, a certain t- style of football will suit him. And the championship isn't necessarily that, you know, it's much more attritional. There are more turnovers and there's been that sort of uncertainty about whether he can actually make the influence that, 
that I think you would want from a from a ten. Now, if we were talking about a player who's coming through the ranks in, in Portugal or, or Spain, obviously he, he he was born in Lisbon himself. Um, that's a, the way the game is played out there is actually better suited to him. So I think if they were looking at a loan or something like that, it would be in that way, which is obviously difficult with the pandemic and everything else. But um, that that's where there's that that's probably the one sort of I wouldn't say concern because it's clear he's got talent, but what will make it difficult for him is that ne- the league, the championship itself is not probably as suited to him, but they believe he does have the ability to, to make an impression. And, and, you know, I think the Premier League is a little different and then it's a much more style based, much more tactical. Um, and that allows players like Carvalho to, to, to play and to have a little bit more freedom than they may, he may not get in the championship is particularly if he, become, he becomes one of those players that's targeted by, by opposition. Maybe, but Emi Buendia is what, 5'7"? Exactly. Harvey Elliott's 5'8". He's done all right this season. Uh, you know, there, the, there definitely is the scope. That's that's the thing. And I think what's interesting is there's a perception that the championship is changing. You know, I think we it's always been assumed to be that chaotic division that's just anyone can beat anyone. And, and it is still that to an extent, but there's definitely, definitely a change in terms of the tiers of clubs. You know, there's very much a a top bracket mainly comprised of teams with parachute payments. There's a middle school trying to push and trying to almost overspend to try and break into that bracket. And then there is those coming up from League One where the gap is just enormous, um, desperately trying to cling into the division. And, and those like Derby County are just falling apart at the seam. So um, there's, there's a lot of clubs in the championship yeah. always, always falling <laughs> apart at the seams, it, feel, but, it feels like. But what, what that does do is when you do have that sort of strata, you do actually get that sort of variation and, and that may change things from it being just so turnover based and so hectic and that that will allow players like a Buendia or indeed a, a Carvalho to, to really shine. One player I'd be fascinated to see what happens next season is um, Steven Sessegnon. Um, has played 18 times for Bristol City uh, this season, um, twice in the League Cup and then 16 times in the Championship. A mixture of kind of substitute appearances, but but has played kind of 90 minutes, um, maybe about eight or nine times and, and actually got a decent-ish run in the side towards the end of the season in a, in a Bristol City side that really struggled and actually had the season gone on for maybe another five or six weeks, they could have found themselves really in in, in relegation mire. So it's not been an easy time um, at Bristol City. Do we see him potentially challenging for right-back space? I guess if you do have Kenny Tete there, he's going to struggle to get himself above Kenny Tete. Yeah, I think Kenny Tete, you would assume, would be first choice if, if as long as he's not been been, been picked up by anybody. Um, but my, you know, my, my sort of understanding is that Stephen Sessegnon is going to come back in and, and you know hopes to be involved this year. Um, I think his contract's up in in a year's time, so I guess there's a dilemma there about whether he extends or or seeks seeks another loan. But you know, the noises at the moment are that he will have some kind of role, and I think that there's a player there who. You know, he's certainly certainly good enough for this level. I think he's shown that with Bristol City. He's been unlucky actually this year because, as Alfie Mawson has as well, been been injured for a lot of it. Uh, Sessegnon, I think, injured his hamstring if I'm not mistaken and missed quite a bit of the the first half of the campaign. So, you know, for him, it's an opportunity. Obviously, there are other options at fullback. I think Cyrus Christie. I imagine that Fulham would want to maybe move on. I mean, there seems like there'll be a blank slate for those coming back. But you know, I think when you look on paper, I think you there would be a preference to to push Steven Sessegnon and obviously there's Dennis Adoy as well, you know, in, in the background probably as that sort of utility option. But I think there there is a sense that he will he will be involved. And I think there is a player there that, that Fulham can can really push on and, and see develop because he's been around the first team for a, for a little while now, but not actually made that jump that, that key step. Yeah. And um, yeah. just a last one on on squad before we, we move on. Um I wanted to just ask Peter, you said that there was gonna, you know, it doesn't look like any of the loans are going to be made permanent. Uh, you can kind of obviously understand that from the perspectives of and, and Ariola and Anderson. I think the fee on Olaina is probably too high to to activate. I am interested though in in one Mario Lamina um who seems to love life in London, has this kind of you know, energy and attitude seems to have come down from that perch of thinking he was a Champions League player, um, and and does seem to you know to care about this team. I spoke on on Tuesday about it, but obviously it was like there was talk of it being crocodile tears. It didn't feel like that to me. Um, and then Josh Madger, who hasn't pulled up many trees, but hasn't also been given too much time on the pitch. Bordeaux, as Ben pointed out, are in administration. Um, have no money and look like they might well be relegated to league there. You'd imagine that they're they're 
board are going to, or the, the people in control of their board are going to be trying to sell off assets left, right and centre. Is there any kind of indication that Fulham might try and activate any of these? So my understanding with the loanees is that Fulham expect them to leave. The expectation is that now the team's gone down, you know, they're expecting them to go and they will plan in that way. However, they are open-minded to retaining them. And I guess it comes down to if the players really want to to stay and, and actually to, 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 to stay on at Fulham and, and fight. Now, I think Ben's absolutely right regarding Bordeaux. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, their financial situation really does open up some some possibilities. Um, and, you know, whether Fulham will face competition for Madger will be interesting. And that's probably why there's a reluctance to be like, we we look to... To, to to actually go out and say we, we we're going to plan and make sure we get these players because it, it's not guaranteed now that relegations happen. But when someone like Madger, even though his 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 option on his contract is nine million pounds um, or around that sort of mark, um, you know, I think there 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 would be a consideration there. And he's a player that you think could do well in the championship, and and maybe that that is a level for him to really excel at. Um, he's done well in the Premier League. I mean, I think he scored three league goals. It could have been four with the Spurs game. Um, which isn't bad in a team that hasn't done very well in front of goal at all. And it's not like he's played every game and every minute either. Um, so uh, certainly at a championship level, I think he could be a quite a good, good buy. And obviously, of course, he, came, he was spent time in the academy. is a good option for Fulham to have. And I think that, that really does sort of make him a good fit. Someone like Lamina, it just depends, I think, on, on whether he gets Premier League interest. Now, the option on Fulham's loan deal is not very high at all. And I think that probably might encourage some teams to to consider moving for him. Uh, I can't see him staying at Southampton, um, but he certainly increased his stock. And I, as you say, he looks very comfortable in London. Um, he seems to be enjoying himself. And I, I think he, I think like they all do, I mean, a lot of these players have young families. Having that stability is is really important. So um, I wouldn't rule them out is my, is my sort of view on it with, with the loans. I think there are some you can. I think like so Joachim Anderson, Adam Ola Lutman, it's just not going to happen. Uh, Alphonse Ariola. But um, but with 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 someone like with Mario Lamina and Josh Madger, I think that there are there, there is an open minded sense. You know, there's a sense of you know if, if it can happen, then maybe it will. But um, it, it will just be a case of of the circumstances these players find themselves in at, at the end of the season. Jack, do we know if uh, Fulham still have the gin bar? <laughs> yeah, I think it's still there, mate. Yeah, why? Well, just because he, you know, his Twitter handle is like tonic like lemonade, isn't it? <laughs> so maybe that's the reason he'll be up for staying at Fulham, just the natural synergy. I like that. I like that a lot. Okay, right. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to look ahead to the Southampton game for all that it matters. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Part three of the Fulhamish podcast. It's Sammy here with Jack and Peter. And, and just before we finish, Peter, um, what are preparations like for for Saturday's game against Southampton. Do we expect any kind of wholesale radical changes like no low knees in the side, um, youngsters everywhere, or is it going to probably be quite similar to what we've seen all season and they'll just be playing for a bit of pride? I think, I think I'd be surprised if there's wholesale changes. Um, you know, there is still prize money to play for in, in securing 18th place, as, as silly as that sounds perhaps at this point, but you know, when 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 things are financial fair players were led to believe are quite tight. Every little every penny does does matter. I think there is also an element of players wanting to play for for pride. A lot of the players will want to um at least try and sign off in a good way, especially the the loanees and with with games coming up in front of supporters, you know, the fact they haven't really played in front of fans all season. So that's something that they'd probably want to to do and to, to strive to keep their places for. But that said now that relegation is is confirmed, you know there is a case to say, well, maybe Fulham should should start looking ahead for next season and use these as opportunities to to try some players out. Maybe there is a case for some of the youngsters to to be brought up. You know, the under twenty three season has ended now. It finished uh, last Wednesday against West Brom, and you know those those players it might be a good opportunity for them to to step up and train and, and maybe join the team and in in, in in squads as well. So 
there is that case. The likes of you know Josh Onoma as well. I think I think I'd be surprised if he doesn't get more more minutes because I think he's someone that, as, as Jack mentioned earlier, will want to play an important role this uh, next season. So um, there is that sort of dilemma between one and the other. But I, I I don't think at this point there will be a lot of changes. But we'll see. With Scott Parker's press conferences this afternoon, Thursday afternoon, so probably after the 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 uh, before the pods out so um we'll find we'll get a clearer picture there i think yeah i mean interesting matchup against southampton i guess i was in such a bad mood peter on tuesday about um fulham being relegated i didn't even know that they'd beaten crystal palace 3-1 on tuesday i had absolutely no idea what that score was until i've just looked this second <laughs> <laughs> they're a different team aren't they with danny ings in it um i think that's been a key thing for them and the fact he's been in and out of the team in the second half of the season has contributed greatly to their to their slump. And, you know, they really were in a slump. And I think, you know, uh, in, in the hypothetical world that, that Fulham beat Burnley and come into this game, and, and then may, maybe it's a different atmosphere for them facing Palace, a little bit more pressure, because suddenly it's, you know, not inconceivable that they could be pulled a little closer to the drop zone. That's obviously completely changed now. And, you know, Ralph Hasenthal's teams tend to press well, to press high. And, um you know, I think you know Fulham. Fulham matched them back in December. I think it was a missed opportunity, really, that they didn't take the the three points in that game. Um, but you know, now now it's a case of you know playing for pride a little bit. And you know, Fulham have shown actually, you know, in the back of the last relegation, of course, they 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 picked up picked up three points. And I think in the previous relegation before that, they picked up a, a point as well. So they tend to respond quite well once the once the axe has fallen. And um, it'll be interesting to see if that happens again. Yeah, indeed. Uh, no Mario Lamina, of course, um, this weekend uh, against his parent club. Be interested to see if uh, Harrison Reed's fit again. And of course, potentially there might be a cameo for Tom Kearney. You never know. Um, it, if that was the case, uh, it'd be really nice to see him back on the pitch. Well, Fulhamish will be returning um, this Sunday. I believe Jack's hosting, um, looking back at that Southampton game. Uh, and hopefully we'll have some interesting points to discuss because, of course, the result is a little bit academic. But if there are some fleeting Appearances for youngsters or if someone like Josh Onoma gets a good run out or if we see uh, Tom Kearney back in the side I'm sure there'll be plenty to discuss but of course um, we have kind of got these three dead rubber games that don't mean an awful lot and I imagine there'll still be a lot more kind of relegation fallout to come over the next few weeks so the relegation tapes maybe we'll call these uh, next series of podcasts so uh, thank you to my guest today Peter Rutzler thank you oh, thank you Sammy thank you very much and thanks for not throwing me off since I've now been christened the the relegator uh, much appreciated that's okay jack collins thank you very much thank you sammy i'm hoping that next season rutzler the relegator can become peter the promoter <laughs> oh very good very good i like that one i like that one <laughs> all right we will be back uh, on sunday as i mentioned peter will be back next week as well until then come on you whites. Right.